1: Uh, Welcome back to Hurtel. I'm excited about this one. I love talking to this gentleman. I love interacting with him on the Twitter, which we do frequently. He's been a good Twitter buddy. He is an August and respected member of the Twitter Supper Club. Uh, But his day job, he's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. You've seen his writing all over the place. Brent O'Rell, sir, how are you? Thank you so much for the time today.
0: I'm doing, I'm doing great. Thank you, Andrew, for having me on. And uh, I almost didn't recognize myself from that introduction. So that's, uh, that's terrific. Uh, And I big fan of, um, of all of your work and her tell. And it's just, uh, it's great to know that there's this voice out there um, that is, um, you know, trying to present solid arguments to um, an audience that it's hard to reach, actually.
1: Yeah, it's uh, we very much have a niche media, but there's some niches we haven't filled the cracks in yet. And we try to do that. That was just my payback for being on your show where we were <laughs> going to talk real big picture stuff and ended up talking about Waffle House. Well, it after- was,
0: now, is there anything bigger <laughs> picture than the Waffle House? I no. don't
1: think so. No, it is a microcosm of Americana. That's right. But yeah, everybody, we talked for like an hour and a half and all everybody talked about when that release was, hey, you talked to Brett about Waffle House on AEI. That's amazing. So I will wear that hat, proudly do so. Um, We're talking about the piece that you wrote about men in the workforce. I've got to ask you because, and you started your piece out with this, you actually wrote and studied this way back in 2017. As part of a larger uh, poverty study, but you touched on a lot of the same things and then you started the new piece. So let's just start right there. Uh, 2017 till now, what has or maybe more to the point, what hasn't changed that brought you back to this subject of men in the workforce?
0: Yeah, that's a great place to start. I mean, we have been really since 2015, I think, sort of consumed with this challenge. We didn't realize how big a challenge it was. Or how big a challenge it was going to present, not just to workforce, um, but to uh, the broader society of this problem of male withdrawal from the workforce. Um, And you know, uh, the election of Donald Trump to the presidency sort of put this problem front and center on the national agenda. Uh, Everybody started scrambling with you know. What does this mean? How should we respond? What do these what do these uh, white non college educated men in particular want? What do they want? Uh, how, what are what's wrong? How can we fix it? Then there were a couple you know very important books. Uh, Nicholas Everstadt here at AEI wrote a good book a short book on the problem of male workforce disengagement and um, and then the two scholars up at Princeton um, uh, <clears throat> Angus King and uh, and his wife whose name is slipping my memory just in the moment but they wrote uh, you know they were they wrote a book on uh, the deaths of despair you know what's you know, and trying to get a handle on what happened between about 2000 and 2015 uh as uh as we went through a really rapid and abrupt i think kind of shift in the job market that um seems to have impacted men um uh, disproportionately um so uh those books came out and then robert Dorr, who is now the president of aei um, i wasn't really working at AEI at that point i was an outside contributor robert Dorr, who led our Poverty Studies is now president and then Harry Holzer, who's a very well known labor economist at Georgetown University. The three of us got together to try to write up some public policy considerations to address the challenge, not so much dwelling. We kind of laid out the the underlying problem, but we were more interested in what what might be done um, to help reverse this challenge. So that's what it was. That was our situation for quite a while. And what struck me as the economy began to move out of the pandemic um, recession was that the labor market was in fact changing in some ways that were really quite favorable um, toward professions, occupations that have traditionally been male dominated. And you could see this, I mean, we've all heard about the labor shortage, but where is that labor shortage most acute? Well, it's actually most acute in fields like manufacturing and construction, mining, uh, uh, and and other kind of fields that we think of as male dominated occupations. So my purpose in kind of resurfacing this issue was to say, hey, you know, we may have an opportunity here um, with the way that the, the labor market is shifting to have something of a pull as well at, at, to pull men back into the workforce, but also a push on the policy side. So that was really the purpose of uh, this article, was just to sort of highlight, we have a moment. We don't know how long that moment's going to last, but there are a million open manufacturers A million open manufacturing jobs in the united states right now there are hundreds of thousands of construction jobs and that's projected to increase uh the energy problems that we're experiencing we were experiencing before the war in ukraine are as we can see at the gas pump every day um just off the charts we need more people and traditionally, those people have been men. So the jobs are there, but where are the men? Um, where are what? We've got a lot of folks, a lot of men on still on the sidelines in this country um, uh, of the job market. Where are they, and how do we get them back?
1: Yeah, let's start right there with you can only job pull from the job pool of the people that you got. It's long been discussed. Uh, we've covered it on this program before. I know you've wrote about this before. It seems like the entirety of our secondary education system is becoming a funnel to college. So how do we wind up with non-college males? We know 60-some percent, it varies a little bit, of the population does not have a college degree. If we're going to talk about non-educated white males, how are they winding up that way? Is it the kind of passing of the secondary education vocational system of education? Is it uh, the other societal yeah. factors you talk to? Let's get the nomenclature right of why are they college non-educated in the first place? Because there's a lot of them out there.
0: Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I, I this, the, these uh, are complex questions. And our tendency with complex questions is to try to simplify them rather than acknowledge the complexity and figure out how to respond. So. Um, Progressives and conservatives have diametrically different analyses, <laughs> diametrically opposed analyses of what the problem is. Um, uh, back in the 1990s, when we went for, through the first round of this, it was predominantly Black men who were the point of greatest concern. And the argument from the progressives was this isn't a problem of culture. It's not a problem of morale. It's not a, a, a problem of character. It's really a problem of the jobs having picked up and moved away from where these men lived, right? They, the, the, the industrial sites uh, where in, were industry was located, located concentrated in the cities some of that just went away period, but some of it actually just moved. It moved to the suburbs or it moved from uh, Michigan to um, Atlanta or it moved to the Southwest. You know, there was both sort of an internal geographic displacement and an international geographic displacement, but, but progressives insisted that this was a structural problem uh and not a cultural problem uh, conservatives came at this from exactly the opposite perspective in fact one of our scholars here at aei charles murray has written very persuasively on this that you can't explain the withdrawal from work only with structural factors in fact what may be more important is the collapse in morale and the belief uh, in work morale and the belief that um that Working hard every day is a primary value, right? These are these are values. These are things that really characterize the white working class in this country. Um, this is how men define their uh, their character, their um, their personhood, was as workers and providers for their families, and that uh, that. It was, that that was the collapse that was going on in the 1990s among black men, was that that collapse in identification with work. So we fast forward to 2015 and many of the conservatives, not all, certainly not Charles Murray, um, really uh, began to migrate toward the progressive position, right, they looked at white male, uh, unemployment and said to themselves, well, uh, this can't be, this can't be really, be, these are our people, these, these can't be, this can't be a cultural problem, right? This has to be structural. They, they took on a lot of the structural argument saying it was trade, it was automation, it was uh, the displacement of communities from uh, from good jobs or good jobs being displaced away from the communities where they traditionally traditionally been housed. So don't blame don't blame the the, the men. Blame the trade agreement. Um, and that turned out to be a very potent political argument. Um, uh, and something that Donald Trump uh, really you know ran on in large part was the sort of resentment. Um, about economic change. So it that, that argument, it, it's it was just remarkable to me. And that this is another one of the things that the, the change has really become so apparent is that conservatives, particularly those we think of as kind of the national conservatives, the more populist uh, part of the Republican Party, which is most of the Republican Party now, um, uh, Really, have adopted this um, structuralist argument uh, rather than thinking about the harder questions of agency, uh, you know, personal decision making and choices, the willingness to move um, when you need to find a new job. Uh, that all of the things that are internal have kind of been uh, have been discounted. So. That was the, to me, the really remarkable and kind of profound shift that has gone on is that uh, in the political debate, it's just that conservatives now sound a lot like the progressives of the 1990s.
1: So, in the way you wrote it is if the populist moment is saying, well, it's not the men themselves; it's system structures and policies, and that's traditionally the you know the progressive argument. Well, it's systematic and it's structures and policies. What does the data say though? Is it a little bit of both? Is there a mixture in the spectrum that we're missing and wading across? What does the actual data say when you lay it out though?
0: Yeah, so there's no there is no question that that the economy has changed, right? We went from an agric- primarily agricultural economy in the nineteenth century to the industrial revolution which carried us into the 1970s, which then be, began the shift toward the information economy and is now um, largely uh, moved into knowledge, information, and services. That that That's the dominant. 80% of American jobs are in the service sector. We still produce a tremendous amount of stuff in this country. Manufacturing is far from dead. We just do it with a lot fewer people than we used to do. And that's the automation question. So to answer your question, that's what I said at the beginning, like we want a simple narrative about this. What we've got is really complicated narrative. These problems, structural problems and the cultural problems feed off of one another. Um, if a business can't find an adequate workforce, that incentivizes the move toward automation. Uh, uh, not that it needs a whole lot of incentivizing. Uh, you know, if the jobs disappear, people do get discouraged. It is hard. Uh, I'm not discounting that. Um, and, uh, and morale is affected um, by that. So it, it becomes kind of a vicious cycle more than anything else.
1: Yeah, we're talking to Brett Orell of the AEI. Uh, he's got a piece out about men. We're going to talk about that vicious cycle when we come back because uh, bad economics fuels cultural issues and vice versa. We're going to dig into that. Also, uh, this is actually a new spin on an old topic. We're going to go all the way back to the 90s like he does at the end of the piece, kind of compare and contrast how it was discussed there and how it was discussed now. More with Brent Orell on Tell right after this. Uh, Welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. We're joined by Brent O'Rell, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Good friend of the program. Been a Twitter buddy for a long time. Thrilled to talk to him again. All right, where we left off, we were talking about these cultural issues and the economic issues, and they can never really be separated. When we talk about a specific demographic like the white, non-educated male workforce, and you start talking about poverty things, which was kind of the genesis of this way back when, when you first started studying it. You talk about things like opioid addiction. You talk about things like uh, disability uh, and that there can be some abuse inside of that system once people are disaffected and or fall into problems, both real, imagined and of their own making. These things feed each other because when you don't have an economic option, that's when a lot of those worst parts of our culture start rearing their head back and forth. Is that showing up in the data when you're talking about this missing male workforce? I got to imagine it's not only a trend, but it seems to be a steady trend now.
0: Yeah, and that was a major point that I wanted to address through the essay, because I, it points to kind of a fundamental inequity in the way that we treat economic disadvantage as it relates to men compared to what we've done uh, relative to, to women primarily in this country, which is in the mid-1990s, 1996, we passed a welfare reform uh, law that's uh, uh, non-custodial parents, or I'm sorry, custodial parents who are mainly women uh, and who are on the TANF program, the Temporary Assistance to Needy Families program, which is the main cash welfare program in the United States, uh, we're going, we're, we would henceforth only allow people to stay on that program for five years, five years max. And while you're on the program, uh, a woman who's on the program, a, m- a mom, who's on the program um, is required to pursue work um, and the things that facilitate work. And we said, we're going to subsidize your wages through the EITC. We're going to provide uh, a childcare voucher program for low-income moms so they could afford you know, a safe place to put their children when they went back to work. But we said that work was the expectation that it was bad for people um, to not work, not just in the sense of being dependent upon uh, the taxpayers for their subsistence, which is, you know, it's a miserable way to live, um, but because it's bad for people, it's bad for their spirits, it's bad for their morale, it's bad for their physical health not to be uh, in the workforce. The work, work meets a whole bunch of different needs, social and economic, in our lives, and it's a, we said to women, you have, women, low-income women with children, you have to go back to work. We have never said that to men, um, largely because men are not connected to our welfare systems in the same way that women with children are, uh, unless they happen to be a custodial parent men sort of just like they, they almost don't exist from a public policy perspective except for things like uh, the child support enforcement program, which is one of these you know efforts to try to get non-custodial dads to cough up uh, when it comes to the economic maintenance of their children. So from a policy perspective, men just don't show up in our systems very much. But they do show up in some places, right? one of those one of the most significant is the disability program there is an argument to be made that ssi ssdi uh, supplemental security income supplemental security disability insurance income um, have uh, become a long-term welfare benefit for men like tanf except that it's unlimited um, once you qualify for it and keep getting certified as being disabled, you're never gonna lose those benefits. Now, if you are disabled, then you need that, that maintenance support, right? The question is, is there some portion of the SSI, SSDI population that isn't disabled, really disabled or could be accommodated in, a, in ways that made it possible for them to work. Uh, are, are, are the screens tight enough to sort of divert people away from that program and encourage them, to, you know, point them back toward the workforce rather than um, allowing them to get on? Because getting on SSDI is like a, a slow death sentence. Um, people get on, men get on it. They're, they were already in not great shape I mean, you can't just jump onto it at will. You have to have some sort of medical justification for this. So they're already in not great shape. But then sitting around all day is horrible for your health. Um, And that's what we know about these men who aren't working, is that they aren't doing doing anything, uh, really. Uh, On average, they're working about uh, any kind of work, paid, unpaid, caring for family, whatever it is, it's about 45 minutes a day um, and that is really bad for your mental, physical, emotional, spiritual health. Um, and so we want, what the article proposes is that we need to look at these chal- the, the program, the SSI, SSDI programs and really try to figure out, is there a better way Um, to structure these programs so that only those who are really, really disabled get that subsidy. And those who are moderately or mildly disabled don't wind up in the program. We also need to look at food stamps, um, which is one of the programs that men can get uh, support through uh, uh, without being responsible for caring for children. And uh, it has an employment component to it, but it's voluntary. There's no requirement. There should, we should be looking at ways, again, of creating an incentive structure that points people back toward the workforce <clears throat> so that people don't just fall into this trap of taking public benefits. You know, frankly, I think it's just really hard on self-esteem um, once you become dependent it's, it can become a vicious, self-fulfilling prophecy in your life that I can't work. So anyway, those are a couple of the programs um, that, that I was thinking about. Um, you know, that there's some, there's some reforms I think that are needed both to equalize treatment between men and women, but also to ensure that we are applying the same principles of redirection back toward the job market.
1: We continue our conversation with Brett Orell of the American Enterprise Institute on Hartel right after this. Yeah, and I remember speaking with Brent Orell of the American Enterprise Institute, our good friend. I, I remember that. Uh, I've talked before the Clinton years were my formative political years. My first election was the 98 midterm that well induced me today because I've learned I learned some good lessons back then about hypocrisy. Um, I remember that uh, the term was welfare queen. Uh, It was very, very if you go back, I I bet a lot of people would get canceled if their comments back then would get put out on Twitter. Now we didn't have social media. It was a lot of ugly stuff. I was in West Virginia growing up. Uh, they sent camera crews from the national networks down to the trailers and started pulling people out of them. And that here's the welfare Queens. I remember all that. That was another time is part of the problem here. And this is not a new problem with SSDI, but it is an all or nothing system. And it takes you forever to get the all. And then the all is even once you get the all, even if you get full non-workable disability, it's still kind of this no man land between a living income and poverty. With the technology now, um, part of the problem is we need a scalable SSDI system, don't we? Because it needs to take into account things like the gig economy, it needs to take into account virtual work. These people look, I'm one of them, I sit here and do this now because I can't do a quote unquote real job anymore because I'm disabled because of mental and physical disabilities. But I can be productive. There's folks that could be productive, but because of the way SSDI is structured, is that all or nothing, and then once it's all. They absolutely wear those folks out with, don't you dare go make money. Don't you dare go make more than whatever the, I think it's $1,200 yeah. now, whatever the current, because it scales. That, that creates that mentality. It's not just the people wanting to be that way. The system funnels them into being that way. Yeah. And technology has switched now where these people, well, why couldn't we give them a, you know, like the military system, for example, where you get, well, you get a 30% and you can work this gig economy job from home and we'll gap it. And things like that. I think we just have an obsolete system, and Tom has kind of passed it by. Does that feel that way to you?
0: I, it, uh, I you know, it's a really good point, One I hadn't thought of in exactly the way that you just talked about it. Um, but right, uh, it's part of this incentive structure that says don't work. You want to keep your benefits, and it may not be. It may be less actually the money than the eligibility for health benefits that um, that gets in the way, you know, like I can't afford to take a job that doesn't provide healthcare benefits.
1: And your children get benefits if you're hundred percent serious, yeah. you know, considerable benefits that that's a portion to them too. Cause yeah. you're talking about educational benefits and stipends.
0: So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I like that idea of, uh, and that there's a, within the SSI SSDI program, there's something called ticket to work, which is intended to provide services and supports to people who want to try to work but are on SSI and don't want to lose everything in the process. So that that idea is there, but it's all voluntary. And I think that we need to shift to a system in which the assumption is that we can find something for you to do, um, that you can be engaged as a worker you can contribute to the main, your own maintenance, and then whatever the gap is between what you can earn and what you need, we subsidize because that's what we di- that's what we're doing with TANF uh, recipients is we're saying, all right, maybe you're only getting, getting a minimum wage job, so if you are, then you've got the EITC that supplements the your income, the Earned Income Tax Credit subsidizes your income. So that you're making enough combined between your earn <clears throat> your earned salary and your tax benefit to make it possible to, to you know do a little bit better than just subsisting. You know we don't we don't want we don't want people to be locked into subsistence um, by um, by welfare programs. Another interesting area, and this is something you probably know something about, but uh, Based on your 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 career in the Air Force is veterans benefits. Veteran veterans benefits can function in kind of the same way if they're you know they're based on disability, and you can sort of stack up those benefits, various kinds of, of benefits, and wind up um, really disincentivized from working. We need everybody. We've got a labor shortage. We, I've never thought of any human. Needs as being dispensable but the indispensability of people is really in front of us right now uh, in terms of the shortage in the labor market so let's make the most of that let's get as many people back in the workforce as we can
1: yeah talking to Brett Orell a friend from AEI uh, as a way to kind of recap some of this because again it's a huge topic Uh, Your new piece is great on it. It also links back to the older work you've done. I encourage folks to read it. Part of this, I think everything we do nowadays, especially when it's a heavy topic like this, there's a language barrier to it. You already touched on it, that the the populist notion and the progressive notion has kind of met in a certain way with the way the language approaches it. We already know that talking about uh, men in this regard is a little bit fraught. What language wise should we be doing to person? because again, well, we touched on we don't want to do the welfare queen thing again because that was ugly and it was uncalled for and it was, you know, very misogynistic, quite frankly. We don't want to do that with these men because we already seen what happens when they get when they really get disinfected and victimized, bad things mm-hmm. happen. What's the terminology we should be using to to go after them? I know we got acronyms for it for the academic side, but when we're just on our social media or advocating about it, what's the way we should address this, do you think?
0: Yeah, so I, again, really terrific question. Uh, I think if I were uh, thinking about this from the standpoint of what women have had to put up with uh, in terms of the way that they've been talked about as uh, welfare queens and dependent, you know, I, I, I guess my sympathy might be a little bit limited and, and let's be honest right that language as applied to women was not just misogynistic it was frequently racist, I mean it was it was about um, black women right that were uh, caricatured uh, for political purposes. We don't want to do that we don't want to dehumanize people, um, so we need to avoid those kinds of stereotypes, we just it it, it strikes me as. Uh, historically, an uh, historical irony that the very language that was used to caricature women was targeted at the demographic that we're talking about now. It was targeted toward um, ginning up and um, amplifying resentments for the purposes of politics. There is some accountability There needs to be some acknowledgement in my view that that's what happened uh, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, that that was part of what was going on. The flip side of that is that these current conditions totally undermine the idea that this was somehow about gender or race. This This is a human problem that affects all kinds of human beings regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, whatever categories you wanna throw in there. Uh, And that this human problem requires solidarity across the social and economic spectrum. We need to acknowledge that just as uh, the women that we talked about in the past, had structural disadvantages that played an important part in their dependency. We need to look at our current dependency problem and say yes, there are structural elements here that have to be that have to be dealt with—economic, social, cultural. Um, but we need to be honest that that's a big change in everyone's tune from where we were in the nineteen nineties, and that there needs to be a little bit of a reckoning um, around that. Um, just, you know, truth and reconciliation. We need, we need truth about this, um, about the, uh, some of our attitudes from the past.
1: Yeah, that reckoning that is always just over the next hill, my Uncle didn't yeah. say when we're hiking and you never yeah. quite ever got over the next hill. But yeah, thus yeah. we have work to do still, my friend, and we'll continue to talk to you about it because you do good work. We're going to have you back on frequently because you're you're so insightful and you've been a good friend. And we appreciate this until we get you back. Let folks know where they can find you and your work and your social media so they can keep track of you until we talk to you again on our tail.
0: So I'm, uh, as, as you already said, I'm active. Some would say way too active on Twitter, um, and it's at Orel O R R E L L A E I um, uh, is where you can connect with me. There, uh, I I'm also on LinkedIn. If anybody wants to, is working off of LinkedIn, uh, and um, and then of course. Uh, everything that I write um, for my job is published at AEI.org, uh, and you can search my scholar page. I have a you know a, a page that's just about my work, all of my work. Um, so those are the the best ways. Um, and always anxious to hear uh, from people who are reading the work. Um, I, I really a lot of people don't like comment sections on. Uh, on their articles. I actually like comment sections. Um, I, if they're, if they're horrible and mean and nasty, I don't respond. But if somebody raises a question, uh, I want to think about it and respond to it. Um, so always, always glad to hear from people. Um, and you can reach me and my, my email is on, the, on the webpage.
1: Yeah, one of the things we're proud of at Ordinary Times for 15 years Uh, with with a few exceptions because everybody's got their special cases uh we're pretty proud of the comment sections pretty pretty high-end folks and i agree because that's that's where you get a little bit of the the push and pull where creation happens so Mm uh you do good work sir i appreciate your time greatly on this a lot to chew through this we could probably do four or five of these on there we (laughs) might do it and someday soon you and i will share a booth at the waffle house my friend That sounds
0: great i can't wait
1: thank you for your time sir appreciate it you
0: bet thanks